So the call comes in and uh, when, when she was gone and, uh, you know, we chatted briefly and he talked about what a great edit she did and what, a, what an exacting editor she was and what a help she was and all that. And he had just one small special request. He had something at the end of the story, or maybe even the last line that he wanted reinstated, that he's like, I, if, if, if I could convince you to, you know, ask her if she could reinstate it. I was like, you've got to the right guy. I'll, you know, I can do that for you, Mr. Updike. And I liked it. I'm, I'm a little bit more maybe sentimental than, than, than she would be. everyone welcome to 15 minutes a podcast about fame and much much more episode 56 my name is jamie berger and before we get to our guest today i would like to vent a little hi hi guys hello people who listen so this really isn't directed at you it's directed at people who don't listen I had a couple of experiences in the past couple of weeks that I'd like to share with you and uh, ask for your help in my fight to get people to listen to this, even though they are kind of put off by the ostensible topic of fame. So in the same 12-hour period, uh, I posted the last episode by Laurie Kilmartin in all the places, and one of them was LinkedIn. and no one ever shows any response to my posts on LinkedIn. I don't really use LinkedIn, so I don't know whether people pay attention to other people's posts. But one guy who I was somehow connected with, I don't know him, uh, but we were we were a first degree connection. So we must have accept one of us must have accepted the other's invitation at some point. Uh, he clicked like, you know, the little like on on the the post. And nobody ever does on LinkedIn. So I and I I looked him up, and it seemed like he did some podcasty stuff, and he was someone who did uh, promotional work for things like podcasts and other stuff. So I wrote him, and I talked about the the the, the difficulty of reaching a wider audience, and thus being picked up by a podcast network. And we had a little chat back and forth, and. He ended up giving me some advice that I thought was rather standard, good advice, but that mostly stuff I had thought of already and was trying to do in terms of how to put the podcast out there. And he said that you know, he gave me some a couple of little rewrites for the 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 description of the podcast on on the page. But you know, we had a little conversation. And then uh at the end of that, he said he wrote based on all you've said and the passion that you've shown, it seems like it's obvious that this, you know, you're, you're smart and involved in this and this should be really good. But I think, I think the problem is what it's positioned as. I think it's just, it's not really about fame. And so I wrote back, he went on to say that fame is all about just, just wealth and, and, and celebrity. And, and that's not really what you seem to care about. And so I wrote back and I said, well, Thanks for the help. If you ever actually listen to an episode, 
and want to give me some feedback on the actual content, please do. Yeah, I, I, I did thank him sincerely, but I was also like, you know, fuck you. If you don't want to listen, it's, it's a podcast about fame. I can't just change the name of it. I could start a new podcast. Um, but it was one of two things in that 12 hours of people wanting to give me criticism or advice, but who weren't willing to even put in five or 10 minutes in the beginning of an episode. Uh, the other was someone I knew in grad school. And why am I not worried about this getting out there and offending them? Because they're not going to listen. So here I go. The other person, uh, we had said hello on Facebook after not chatting for a while. And she, with unbidden, said to me, hey, I see your stuff sometime, but I see the the, the podcast and I... A, I, I don't know how to click on it. And B, um, it can't really be about fame, is it? Why would you want to talk about fame? I don't want to hear anyone talk about fame. And again, this is someone I went to graduate school for creative writing, you know, with. And it, so it made me feel a little bit like, well, that's great. You don't like the title of my story, so you're going to feel free to critique it. And I... I think most of you out there who know me at all know that I am open to critique and that I, I took some re really recently from uh, my friend Rob uh, that I'm implementing in the show. I'll tell you about it once it happens. But it's like saying I don't like your album cover even though you're my old friend and so I'm not going to listen to your record. If you're not willing to put 10 minutes in because you don't like listening to people talk, that's fine. Shut up. If you think you like podcasts and people talking, but you don't like my topic and you're not a, that's not a friend if you're not willing to spend a few minutes, which leads to my other complaint. And that is that fame, you've heard me say it before. People are like, ew, why would you want to talk about fame? Well, I maintain as, as the presidency of Donald Trump continues that as much as one could make a convincing argument that racism is the reason Donald Trump is president, as much as one could uh, make an argument that 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 jingoism and fear of others uh, is, uh, from other countries and other religions is why he's president, as much as one could make what I think is the most convincing argument, no, they're all really convincing, that uh, misogyny is why Donald Trump is president. I think given some sort of a point scale and a debate format, I could make just as good an argument that Donald Trump is primarily president because of fame. And that is why we need to take a look at it. And you all know who listened to the show. I don't, these episodes aren't, aren't icky. I don't push people on, you know, I'm a little soft, perhaps a little too soft. But this is a topic that we have to start being that a certain kind of uh, level of intellectual or educated or person who doesn't participate in celebrity lifestyle should really be thinking more about beyond like, I hate fame because it has become arguably the most valuable commodity in the world. And it has made an awful 
vapid, stupid, amoral human being, the most powerful man on the planet. The only thing he's succeeded at is being famous. Even a bet half of his base knows that he did not succeed at getting rich. He barely succeeded at staying rich and arguably could be deeper in debt than he is rich. What he succeeded at was getting famous and not even getting famous as a likable guy. On his own show, he was kind of the villain. But he got his name known around the world, and we think of that as an accomplishment in and of itself. And we all wrestle with wanting or hating that we want some of that or that we, we everyone, everyone I know, just about. And if you're tired of hearing me talk about Trump in terms of why it's important to think about fame, uh, I'm not going to use their names. We know their names. The Columbine shooters were as consumed with fame as, as rage and hate and anything. They wanted to go down in history, as have the people after them. So on top of making weapons that can kill a lot of people in a very short amount of time illegal... Let's think about why we crave that attention. Which leads to a last little bit, and that is that uh, about a week ago on Facebook and on Instagram, talking a lot about the social media today, media I, um, probably late at night or in the wee small hours of the morning, I just on a whim, in capital letters, wrote, this as a Facebook update and then made it into a picture for Instagram. It was uh, with the new Facebook thing that can turn your, your, your posts different colors. It was white ink, capital letters, pink background. And it said, I need a lot of approval from others. Is that okay? And it was one of the most popular posts I've posted in a long, long time. Uh, a lot of friends, you know, made little joking, uh, jokingly supportive comments. And someone else wrote, you know, from some people, I would have thought this was dickish, but you're okay, buddy. Uh, and I'm sure that there might have been just as many who were like, oh, Jamie, you needy fool. And there were probably some people who realized that I was at least half joking and probably few who realized that it's kind of, until I typed it out, I didn't realize it, but it's kind of an homage to to conceptual word artists like Jenny Holzer, but the statement, I need a lot of approval from others, is that okay, is another way of looking at what this podcast is about when it isn't about my guest's current projects or whatever else we want to talk about. It's a podcast about fame. And the one favor I would ask of you all is that if you like it, and you don't think it's icky, and you tell someone about it, and they're like, ew, fame, just tell them, just, you like podcasts, give, give it 10 minutes. Because as much as I'm happy that we are now on Spotify, <clears throat> and as much as I am happy that we have a new host, Pippa, to make this the kind of thing where I can do it more than twice a month and I can do more of these little five-minute stories that everybody seems to like where someone just tells a little story of a brief brush with fame. Um, I need more time. And to, to get more time, I need to make some money. And otherwise, it'll stay what it is, and I really enjoy doing it. Um, but in since January, I've been writing to people at 
podcast networks and people who produce them. And occasionally I get responses and a couple of them have been very supportive and but to the extent of get back to me when you have 30,000 subscribers. I've done this for two years. I've had some pretty fancy guests who I thought were, aren't on many other shows and were, whatever you think of me, had some really interesting things to say. I think I'm well over a factor of 10 away from having 30,000 subscribers. And what's frustrating is, if you write a novel and an agent sells it, they're going to want to, they do some research on the demographics or whatever. If you write a TV show and someone buys it, sure, they want it to succeed. But they don't say, go get us 30,000, no, 3 million viewers and then we'll sign your TV show up. Or go go get me, you know, 30,000 pre-sales of the book and then we'll publish it. So it's a tough road here in the podcast world. And if you can help get those number of listeners up, then maybe I can do this more. And if you have any advice for me as a listener who actually listens to the show, please drop me a line. I'm sure you can figure out how to do it without me saying, but I'll say it again. 15-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. That's the website, 15 Minutes Jamie Berger. There's a contact link on there, or you can email info at 15MinutesJamieBurger.com. I would love your feedback. Okay. My guest today is Christopher Napolitano. Until recently, and for the past mm, eight years, Chris ran Indian Country Today, which is described in his bio thusly. Christopher Napolitano held the post of creative director for Indian Country Today Media Network from 2010 to September of 2017. He was responsible for all media and media strategies produced for the platforms of ICTMN, a highly regarded and award-winning outlet serving Native Americans and the premier news source for Indian Country. And we talk a little bit about that part of his career, but that's to be honest, not why Chris is on the show today. Because for the decade before that, Chris Chris and I went to college together. And after college, I uh, began my pursuit of making as little money as possible by working for small presses, uh, New Directions and Grove Press, while he began his career at Playboy where he went on to become editorial director of Playboy magazine, reporting directly to founder Hugh Hefner. His bio goes on to say that Napolitano most likely, most likely, most notably published a series of articles by Mark Boll that served as the basis for two highly regarded movies about Iraq in the Valley of Elah and the Hurt Locker. Chris and I talked about the usual meeting and, in his case, editing your heroes. Uh, this first, this is the first of two episodes, and in this one, he talks uh, tells us some stories about editing uh, John Updike and Norman Mailer. We talk about the process of editing itself. In episode two, we get into some of the juicier stuff, like what it's like to go to the Playboy Mansion and Hef and Donald Trump. 
But this is the more literary of the two. And I hope you like it. We spoke on the phone at first in December. And for some reason, it was just a completely garbled, staticky mess. So I happened to go down to New York City in January, where I visited Chris in Brooklyn. And we recorded again at his house. Here is Chris Napolitano. thought that might be good to start after we talked last time I, I i didn't really thinking about the fact that you comparing your two decades kind of mm-hmm. one a very high profile you know running into you know norma mailer at the office uh going to parties mm-hmm. going to the mansion mm-hmm. um to then taking a year for pretty much a public advocacy group publication Pretty much, yeah. And yeah. Uh, activist journalism, we used to you yeah. know, refer to it, refer to it as, yeah. So when you, you know, first of all, I guess we rehash again. You're, you're very briefly, you know, what, what might not be written in your. So you, you left Playboy because they left you. They left the city. That's right. That's right. The publishing model was under a lot of pressure, um, and uh, we were in three locations, and uh, real estate was an enormous um, expense. Um, L.A., Chicago, New York, you know, um, beautiful offices, uh, lots of people. And so consolidation made sense. Uh, But the plan that was ultimately decided was close New York, move to Chicago. When Chicago's lease went up, uh, ran out, uh, move everything to L.A. And that's what's happened They're 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 all in L.A. Mm -hmm. And that was like a three year process. Um, and I just wasn't going to commit to that, you know, for, for a number of reasons. I wasn't sure that it wanted to work, you know, that it was going to work. Um, you know, size was very important to, to, to Playboy, to something mass market like that. Um, once you start shrinking it, you're just, you know, your, 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 your margins get worse. Um, and, uh, so that was the, and I'm not the only one who thought that for, we had this debate for years and years and years, you know, what to do as a one title publisher. Uh, so when they went that way, I, I went another way. Um, and I had the great good fortune of, of, um, staying in a, a pretty, uh, sizable role there, uh, during the transition have asked me to, um, just stand on the sidelines for a while, which I was more than happy to do mm-hmm. because I would understand if they also asked me to leave and make a clean break of it. But that transition took about a year and a half, two years. And in that time I was able to, you know, um, start a new project. And how did you end up starting that? Uh, it was very interesting. It, it, it the, the prime mover in all this was the Oneida Indian nation, uh, in, uh, upstate New York. They're a member of the Iroquois Confederacy, the Haudenosaunee. They had a, a title that had been a weekly newspaper or it was at the time a weekly newspaper, low circulation held in high regard among the writers and thinkers of Indian country. And they commissioned um, a, uh, uh, surveys and, and uh, consultants. They brought in consultants to evaluate their media business. Um, and they had a two-pronged approach. Uh, they, they wanted to really um, pr- give a, build a platform that would amplify the, all the stories coming out of Indian country. Um, and the second was to, to 
you know, build some political clout. Mm. But, so how, but, but my, I guess what's, what seems odder to me is yeah. you would think from there you'd go to some Condé Nast publication yeah. or something. Yeah. So yeah. How, how did you, was it a job that happened? You said you stay, you made it seem like you were interested in it innately or did, did was it a job? It, yeah. I mean, like everything, things just sort of like kind of cross, but I mean, I've just, uh, um, things have just sort of happened. Um, uh, I was living in Hoboken with my old pal, uh, uh, Nick Noyes and, and Ken Kaufman. <laughs> my, uh, Nick is my, my biggest, uh, most regular words with friends competitor. Yeah, it's the only nice. connection we still have. Yeah. So uh, Nick and I were, were thinking about the publishing industry and Nick had the uh, great taste in books and was buying uh, a lot of the Penguin pa paperbacks that were, you know, uh, lying around. And, and so we just... Uh, read a lot in between other, you know, our, our uh, drinking uh, and, and whatnot at, at back in uh, Hoboken. Um, and I just got the fiction job at Playboy as an editorial assistant because um, one very basic question, which used to be the, the question and probably still it should still be. Uh, and um, whenever you get in an interview and was what what are, what are you reading? You know, what What have you read lately? And I had been reading T.C. Boyle and mm -hmm. Playboy had just published them. You know, um, mm -hmm. uh, Brett Easton Ellis, Jay McInerney. It was all in that phase of uh, uh, Susan Minot. Um, so uh, the the editor was like, great, you're my one person focus group. You're you're 22, 23. I want, you yeah. know, I, you know it, it, it's good to have you reissue, you know, as a backup to, so that, to yeah. So that's how you ended up. So that's how that happened. Well, just like, yeah. you know, just, just out of the blue. Right? right. And this one happened out of the blue too. My, uh, a person I worked with at one time said that, uh, a uh, publishing executive by the name of Suzanne Sobel, uh, who, who helped build Martha Stewart and basically ran Martha Stewart when Martha was in jail, uh, was on this new project to evaluate a, a media property. And would I meet with her? So I did. And Suzanne said, I need a table of contents because uh, the feedback from all these focus groups had been that a newspaper isn't going to work and they are looking for a magazine type product. And we want to present that to them so they can see that. Uh, but the idea was in no way that we would be involved in the production of that product. This was a, hey, this is what we see. This is what your readers are saying. This is what you should do. Here's mm -hmm. a sample. Um, and, 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 and it took off from that. Now, I had been a re religion major at Columbia. Yes. Okay. Or, or I, I actually minored in religion. I don't think I, uh, it was a major. Um, so I, did, I got out of writing a thesis and I graduated early. So it was all good for me. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the uh, uh, points in comparative religion, one of the, the, the uh, things that you study is, is how... Uh, when, when um, cultures are under great pressure uh, uh, and in danger of going extinct or whatever, as in first century uh, um, Palestine and, and uh, uh, the Jesus cult. Um, similarly, you know, when, when the Lakota were being chased off their lands, they uh, had all sorts of uh, uh, liminal end of time, sort of from the ghost dance to other such prophecies. So you know, Black Elk Speaks was something that I was intimately familiar with and they had a love of history, you know, so I knew American history and knew what had gone down with the, with the natives. So it kind of like, it sounds like a, you were neither attached nor unattached to staying in celebrity culture world and B, there was actual innate 
yeah interest in in the new project that's right yeah. that's right i i love the um you know i love the storytelling aspect of the jobs that i've been part of mm -hmm. um and whether that's fiction or whether that's uh, uh journalist investigative journalism the storytelling more than the news and that was my one bit of trepidation here that um the other it was is another lifestyle change playboy was a monthly um we produced 164 pages per month uh 65 70% of that was editorial product that's a, a relatively leisurely pace mm -hmm. when you think about it now there's more time and pressure to get things absolutely right except when Norman Miller like the day before deadline tells you he needs 30 more pages in another week yeah it we'll always you'll tell that in yeah, a little while yeah so yeah. there's those stresses for sure and you think that's bad but then uh then there's the digital world, which was really coming on strong, obviously. Um, this 2009, 10, 11? This was 2010, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I didn't want to run a daily website. I didn't want to be in that scrum. You know, that's not what I was, uh, that wasn't my, to my taste. Uh -huh. Let's put it that way. Um, but I got lured in <laughs> and yeah. ended up doing that. Yeah. And it's relentless. So we, we put a team together and, um, you know, the uh, Indian country is vast. There's 567 federally recognized tribes um, and it's a geographical, geographical spread is all over the place. But I was just fortunate enough to work with a lot of talented people who had been uh, raised in a tradition of strong native journalism. Yeah. You know, they have known for a long time you know to get their side of the story that was the only way to fend off some of them you know more aggressive genocidal you know um impulses of the of the mainstream culture uh so that was just great because oneida was willing to um fund it all and uh all i did was you know air traffic control of bringing all these voices to the t and, and present a website that was uh, easy to navigate and had all the right um, backend structures to compete with, uh, you know, um, other, other outlets on Google News. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a fascinating sort of like incubator to learn how to do that. And um, we were successful by, you know, um, by most accounts, you know. Did you miss any of the vicarious, the world that you left when you, when you went there? It's not yeah. like you were engrossed in the project. Yeah, I, 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 I did, you know? I mean, um, I missed, you know... I say vicarious because you've said you don't like to see... You don't want your yeah. name in a byline. You don't want to be famous it, yourself, but right. you were, seem to enjoy... Right. I, I, the, boy, I mean, I, I've got some, uh, some pieces up on the, uh, uh, on the wall here, people that I worked with, illustrators and photographers... Um, and, uh, that was magazine craft, um, allowed me to, uh, uh, form a friendship with Mick Rock 
you know, who photographed David Bowie and would talk and you could ask him, yeah. you know, about stuff like that, you know, when you when when he did the Life on Mars video with Bowie in 1972, what yeah. was that like? You know, that's the kind of stuff that would get me super excited or Timothy White or Antoine Vergloss. These are great photographers and, you know, Antoine's going to St. Bart's to shoot the Victoria's uh, Secret. Uh, catalog or the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit catalog. So they're directly in touch with the page six names that you see. Yeah. And yeah, I might meet that model or meet that celebrity or something like that. But it's th those guys had the stories, you know, that really right. made it fun. Right. You know, made it, made it a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's glamorous. Yeah. It is a really glamorous way to live. And, and you know, um, you know, respect to my my former colleagues, uh, uh, Kevin Buckley and, and Alice Turner. They were, you know, high up editors when when I was a, a, a young pipsqueak. And, um, you know, we, we I, I, I got to experience the two martini lunch yeah. know, culture. Yeah, the, the, the probably the, the end of it, the, the yeah. winding down of. Yeah. You, you know, even even agents can be, uh, although they're voracious, like, you know, entertaining and 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 cool. You know, one of the one of the things that and, and having conversations with people over lunch that have nothing to do with anything you're going to work on. Um, but is the exchange of ideas is really very stimulating, yeah. you know, and 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 sometimes I would misplay it. You know, I knew Ethan Cohen wanted to meet. Uh, Norman Mailer, when we had, I threw a, some sort of event at Elaine's, or no, maybe it was for 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 the guy who was the uh, in charge before me for the 50th anniversary, something where all the writers were getting together, and you know, Norman backed out a week before, but I never told Ethan Cohen and his agent because I was wrangling people. Mm -hmm. It's just you know, I didn't even occur. And then when he was there, I was like, oh my god, I never told him that he wouldn't be here. He's like, where's Norman? I'm like, ah, <laughs> Norman's not here. So I, I that stuff can. Really, you yeah. know, get you agitated because both of them, you know, are 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 so super talented that you know I don't want to preserve all those all those relationships. Um, but yeah, so inevitably, when you ask me about fame and all those people, I end up talking about either the photographers or the writers yeah. because that's what my mm -hmm. you know uh, that's what gets me excited. That got me excited. Clearly, I guess. Yeah. Were you involved in bringing anybody in for? The for their first big, uh, their first Playboy story, you know, big, first Some, story, first. You know, there's a great Southern writer named George Singleton who I who I found, you know, uh, and 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 will credit me for that. People will 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 tell me that there's uh, uh that that I was the first to do them who are now you know popular, but like magazine type people. There's a great guy who went on to become a um uh, uh Brian Christie who he got like a, a contributing writers gig at National Geo. And has done amazing work on uh, pet smuggling, you know, uh, from Southeast Asia. Yeah. And the guy's got, you know, big brass balls. I mean, he was great. And he was a, a had, he had been a professional weightlifter. He had been a lawyer. He had been like a, a I think, a, like a, a, a an urban kayaker. Um, and he just decided one day that he wanted to become a writer. And he had this corker of a story. And he was very unpolished, but had the passion and had the chops and I worked with him and walked him through that. Yeah. That was, and um, another guy who I will not, uh, uh, who I did not directly was not directly involved, but bankrolled um, the stories. He, Mark Bowl, was a writer, a young guy who worked uh, primarily with Bob Love, who was mm -hmm. on the staff of Playboy. Bob had run Rolling Stone, mm -hmm. and uh, 
those we we uh, uh, Bob came into my office and was just like he wants to go to Iraq, and uh, I'm like okay sure you know let's let's do it and so we we sent and Playboy's not the like a news or so mm-hmm. we had to take out insurance on the guy's mm-hmm. life we had to buy him body armor you know uh, particularly crotch body body armor because he was gonna be flying around and you know that was a serious source of injury you know people shooting up at planes uh-huh. and get shot in the butt and stuff. Um, so we did all that and, and this was his second or third story for us. And it was the man in the bomb suit. And, uh, uh, I think was the, was the second one or the third, he did, he did one prior to that about uh, a guy who, uh, uh, a group of guys who suffered from PTSD and killed one of their buddies when they're back in Pennsylvania. Now that story was turned into in the Valley of Ela by, uh, mm-hmm. Um, Paul Haggis um, and uh, pr- the Mark's first piece for us called Beautiful High School Narc um, had been turned into a TV movie by um, his, uh, his now partner um, Catherine Bigelow and the story that uh, was the man in the bomb suit got turned into the Hurt Locker um, so I so Mark is up there you know at the Academy Awards accepting the, the best picture yeah. thing we, we tried to make the most out of the connection between like, hey, this is our story that became this movie. There was something in the in the background there that he asked me never to promote a lot. The, the guy who he wrote about was claiming, was looking for money, which you don't really do. Uh, you, you're, he was a public figure because we, uh, because we wrote a story about him, mm-hmm. you know, cooperate. So at that point, you can take that story, anybody could have taken that story and made a movie out of it. But Mark was being hounded at the time. So he didn't really, you know, generate it or try to hang it on like, hey, we're responsible for that. Um, and the guy leveled a suit against Mark Bowl and Playboy and the production uh, company. Now, we dropped out early. We didn't, you know, it wasn't a problem. Um, but it's a funny, funny uh, thing. So to see him, you know, go on and and uh, you know, he's big time director and and, yeah. and producer. So that's uh, I had it wasn't directly me, but that was our, you know, while while I was at the helm, uh, that was happening. So so things like yeah. that are generally we we found more. Uh, we were at the point where people would would really cut their you know make their make their bones somewhere else, and we would pick them up. Yeah, yeah. Well. On, on the kind of other end of the spectrum, you last time you told me two meet your heroes stories, actually work with your heroes texts. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, if yeah. you uh, and and if you would, I remember when you told the the Updike story, you ended up telling two and thinking you weren't telling the right one, but I liked them both. So yes, yes, male or, or Updike, but let's just tell those stories again. Okay, if, we'll if we'll, you, we'll we'll do. And then we'll uh, talk about we'll do Big John, mm-hmm. which, which is which is what Alice Turner would call him. Because before you, the, yeah. before you go into it, something that I always think about is, and what I thought about after you told me the stories is, I'm a lot like you, and that those those things tickle me. They mean a lot somehow, yeah. even yeah. though they might not to the other person. But I mean, in my years when I just when I, I was thinking about when you were at Playboy, I was at Grove Press and New Directions. I would mail packages to Sam Beckett in right. Paris. Exactly, it meant the world to me. Yeah, yeah. I didn't write yeah. him notes. I just right. read a label. Well, I would. Um, you know, the crazy thing was when we got a uh, a submission from so some writers had agents and some did not. So while I'm an assistant there, and uh, there it is, John Updike would would had would have typed out a note. 
on the, uh, as a cover letter to 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 a short story. Sometimes short, sometimes a little long. He he was he did not tend to write you know long cover notes. Um, but uh, sometimes agents wrote on behalf of the, the writer. But a lot of times writers you know sent things in, and then if we bought the story, there would be uh, back and forth in the mail in print between the editor and the writer. Mm-hmm. And we preserved all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I had a file folder by writer name, you know, where we would put these slips in and I would make markings like return the, the reply, uh, if it was a standard reply or something like that, or reject it on such a date. Um, you know, we would do that. We had, you know, file drawer. And then we, then you're talking about the manuscripts, which would get marked up on, on both yeah. sides. And we would preserve those too. Don't ask me where they are today. You know, because we moved an office back in New York to another location in New York. We shipped it all out west. Um, somebody at a certain point got the bright idea that they were worth money and we should sell them. Where are they? You know, I yeah. mean, it's like, but these are like, uh, uh, you could go in and you say, hey, man, that's Nabokov, you yeah. know, writing a letter yeah. back and forth. And, you know, uh, words and concepts and storylines are changing. Yes. And I guess that, that, that leads in well to your, for your big edit. Yes. The yes. So, so I had uh, been working there twenty years, and I had started by opening up letters from Updike and handing them to the, my boss. Yeah. You know, and she would uh, uh, decide to buy it or not, or edit it or not. And uh, you know, he was one of those writers that everything was super clean. You know, you don't you don't really have to do a lot to an Updike story. Either it fits what you want or it doesn't. But there's mm-hmm. nothing internal that needs heavy lifting or changing. You might say, well, maybe this needs a tweak, light light dusting of touches on it. Um, and he would always want his floppy disk back. We'd send the floppy disk back, so we wouldn't keep that. We just keep the hard copy. Three through the not the not the true floppy. Disk. Yeah, no, the true one, the three by five, and then the shorter, harder right, little thing shorter, in the plastic right, yeah. case would, would be common too. I, you know, he just wanted to keep track of them. He probably know. never got to the the zip drive. I don't think no, he never saw the <laughs> never USB saw zip stick disk. or any of that stuff. No, no, no way. No, he never never did that. Um, and he never had an agent, so it would just be, you know, direct. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I uh, the legend was that he didn't like to talk on the phone because he had, like, a little stammering or stuttering. Um, he's a much cleaner speaker than I am, so I don't know what that was all about. Um, so we always just wrote him notes and things. And, and as I my job changed and whatever, I always had a hand in... Um, you know, receiving that material and going back and very infrequently would I speak to him. Um, and uh, at the time, so the, the recently, and maybe somewhere in 2008, 2009, he was working with uh, 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 our fantastic literary editor. I was editorial director and Amy, uh, uh, Amy Lloyd, Amy Grace Lloyd was the literary editor and she had gone back and forth with him a fair amount on a story that even he, you know, he wasn't sure about the ending. So anytime a writer's like, I'm not sure about this, you know. So they had worked on something and she went on vacation. I was going on vacation. He walked into my office and said, okay, boss, here's my edit of the Updike. I've sent it back to him. Um, It's his, uh, uh, I do believe he's going to try to call, you know, in to to make sure we're running out of a little time. So he's going to call us. And I've told him to call you since you've, you know, dealt with him before. And, um, you know, but but uh, just make sure that you keep everything because, you know, he was a little unsure of spots and I'm really convinced that this is the this is the right way to go. 
So the call comes in and uh, when, when she was gone and, uh, you know, we chatted briefly and he talked about what a great edit she did and what, a, what an exacting editor she was and what a help she was and all that. And he had just one small special request. He had something at the end of the story, or maybe even the last line that he wanted reinstated, that he's like, I, if, if, if I could convince you to, you know, ask her if she could reinstate it. I was like, you've come to the right guy. I'll, you know, I can do that for you, Mr. Updike. And I liked it. I'm, I'm a little bit more maybe sentimental than, than, yeah. than she would be. And you mentioned that, that, yeah. that his ending tied it up in a bow a little more. It, and... A little bit of a bow, kind of like taking any ambiguity out of it, you know, um, and maybe even a turn of phrase that we've read before, you know. Um, but I liked that. I thought, you know, it added little heart. Otherwise, it was a little bit of a um, too emotionally detached for my taste. Um, probably not for hers. And I was like, mm -hmm. no, man, I'd love, you know, I'm, this is definitely going back in. I got, you know, I can do this for her. I was so proud of that. Um and it was the last conversation I had with him. And it was the last story we printed by him. And it worked and out in the line. It worked out. Back. Yeah, I thought it worked yeah. out well. She didn't squawk. You know, yeah. I didn't, she didn't yell at yeah. me. Um, people yell at each other all the time. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. It, last time we spoke, I didn't mention it, but it reminded me of, I've always had a huge problem. Well, a whole lot of people have a huge problem with Gordon Lish. But with Gordon Lish is trying to take some sort of authorial credit for Raymond Carver. Yeah. When you take the job of editor, yeah. I don't give a shit how much you rewrote it. That's right. And so I just always resented that. Yeah. That's like, it's just, that's just ethically wrong. But especially the one story, A Small Good Thing, mm -hmm. I think Carver wrote the more sentimental version. Yes. And Lish made the more detached one. And I like Carver's sentimental ending. Yeah, well, you know, Lish had a um, you know, such a such a dogmatic approach to how things should should be shaped and read and how uh use of, of character names or no character names at all. I mean, all that was so big to make it all universal. Boy meets girl, kind of like just strip it down. And, um, you know, and he was also like a bit of a, a, a from what I know, a little bit of a blowhard and an operator and a schemer and uh, he got into a feud at one point with my boss, Alice, uh, Alice Turner. And one speaking, this ties back to the letters thing. Um, he apologized and he did it in a, in a very artful letter that we then thumbtacked, you know, to the wall for like, you know, three, four years was like in the yeah. main bin or something like that. And he said something like, I think your ace is high. That's what he said. Sorry for this, that, and the other thing. I think your ace is high, which I thought was a great little, hey, I've never seen that. That's cool. Yeah. That's a great expression. Um, <clears throat> you know, and if salesmen walk through the office to look at the zoo of editors, you know, they who's this? What's this? What what what's the significance behind this? You'd be like, forget it. <laughs> you know, if you don't know who Gordon Lish is, it won't make sense. Don't, yeah. don't worry. Um, it's inside baseball. Yeah, but yeah, that that's uh, uh, you're absolutely right about that. It's and, and um, uh, if you can contribute some way, I mean, I've uh, gone over every word and every line of so many stories, but I, you know, I, right, I can hardly say that I did anything. Yeah, that, I, that I sometimes you know after they graduate from high school, when someone's in high school, I don't. Some people do, and we all have different beliefs in this but i don't edit their work i i to tell them what's not working yeah sure but once someone's out if they keep sending me work 
I'll suggest a sentence and I try to explain to them, this doesn't make it mine. Yeah. Because a lot of young writers are like, I can't use your sentence. I have to write a different oh, one. Even though yours is just right. I wish yeah. you hadn't told me that sentence. But it's not yeah. like being a director and giving line readings. No, exactly. And there's five ways of saying the same thing. And if you can't think of the other four or if the one way that I've expressed it bothers you, you know, <laughs> don't get stuck up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, in in, in my uh, uh, editing experience, I'd be the type of person rather be also to speed things along. Mm-hmm. I would write the line for them. Um, so we had, there were editors who would write, rewrite things that sounded like the editor's voice. Right. I feel like I'm a great ventriloquist, you know, and uh, that I could catch along with what somebody was doing. Very infrequently did I change, um, you know, wholly like the, the, the style of things. Um, but you can do that. You can, if you're talking about like a magazine feature story, I, I, I thought one of my, uh, it's it's totally obscure, but there was this heist in Pennsylvania. I think they made a movie about it. It was a, more than one magazine article came out about it um, where where these bumbling people decided to pull off a, 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 the theft of a, a payroll from, from a factory in Pennsylvania. And it's just a caper and they just end up doing all kinds of ridiculous things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charming and harmless stuff. I mean, criminal, but you know. <laughs> and uh, the guy turned it in. I, I, I. It just was lifeless. So I, uh, and through, and it would be tough for anybody to kind of get it right. Um, and I just took, like, I shoved it all into present tense, and I, I dropped a lot of subject verb things to telegraph a lot of things to make it seem like you were watching this unfold. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and that's like the I, that stands out in my head as being the most aggressive that I would be with anything that way. Um, and anytime I would write lines for people, I'd be like, change, I'm not, you know, I have no pride of authorship here. Uh, I don't think I said something like so precisely well, but I'm giving you an example of how it could read. You know, and it, it, yeah. So, and so plug it, it. Yeah, yeah, so if you, if you feel like, I wouldn't say that, yeah. I wouldn't write it like that. Oh my God, well, then write it the way you yeah. would. But, but we give need it some more life. Here. Yeah. Exactly. We need some peanut yeah. butter here. You've just got given me two yeah. slices of bread, man. We need something here. Um, and that's what I would be insistent about. So that was a um, that's sort of the the the, yeah. the fun stuff. Yeah. Um, I remember so so I, I had a good relationship uh, with uh, with Tom Boyle, T T C Boyle. Mm-hmm. It was like one of one of my favorites. And um, and uh, uh, who started with with Alice was the first to kind of like publish him a lot. So over 15 years, we he pub- we published him twice a year. Um, and I remember uh, at one point, um, and I, how, how do I do this without uh, throwing people under the bus? <laughs> um, Alice was gone. My managing editor uh, told me to call him to say that we just took out five words because the story was five lines long and we found five widows to pull it up. And uh, I was like, so I called him. I was like, Tom, um, this is what uh, I'm, I'm looking. They just sent it from Chicago. I'm looking at these. They took out these five words and I told him what the words were and everything. He's just like, uh, have them call my agent. Now, I love that man, you know, and whatever. At this point, I was pretty junior in, in the whole mix of things. Um, and good for him because uh, uh, George Borchardt, who's a lovely, fantastic uh-huh. agent, um, 
the the five words were back in. They found the space some other way. They, <laughs> I thought, good for you, man. I mean, if you really yeah, it's feel so, that way, and, it's great. And I think either attitude is great. I mean, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I think it was I'm trying to think. I think it was it was George Saunders writing about his New Yorker. Was it Bill? I always confuse Bill Buford and Bill Bruford. Yeah, Bill Buford would be was it. probably George Saunders' first longtime editor. Well, yeah. you talk about an editor who. When he was first publishing stories in New Yorker, <laughs> um, he would uh, he'd submit it and he'd be and he would just give it back to him and say, like cut it in half, and then and then and then Saunders would work on it. He'd give it back and he'd say, okay, lose another thousand. Oh, and he'd say, get back. And say, okay, lose what five hundred more and we're almost there. Oh my goodness, that's and he would do it and he said it. It made him who yeah. Yeah, that's a great technique. I don't think I've ever done that no. to anybody. And if when I've uh, written the occasional piece, and uh, people have said that, I'd be like, "Oh my hand, you know, just just you take it out. I don't, you know, I'm not yeah. gonna squat I'm fine with it, yeah. at your cuts. Just go ahead and cut it, man. I want you know, let's, let's get the job done. I've gave you more because I thought you might need it. <laughs> um, I can't decide. I wouldn't have written it down that way if that's just, you know the the length that I thought it was was incorrect. Um, my boss at one time, the editorial director of, of Playboy for, oh gosh, 20 years at least, maybe 30, Arthur Kretschmer, had joined Playboy in 67 probably and became the editorial director in 72, the second editorial director after A.C. Spektorsky, another legendary mm -hmm. guy in our, in our Playboy circles. Um, I hired Arthur at the, uh, to write an article uh, for us on the state of the car industry because he was a real car guy really liked cars i'm not a car guy but i just you know I, I could hear him talk and i thought it was great he turned in something twelve thousand words long you know and that's when we had six thousand eight thousand words now this is a guy who was chopping things all his life and telling me to cut right. things in half you just you know uh and i would have to tell the writer we had to cut things in uh and physician uh, heal thyself that was really exactly it was really good we <laughs> ran it at, i found space for ten thousand words i no. think and it got praised by somebody who, like evaluated the thing and i asked him how it worked i did not do the cutting another editor steve randall did the cutting um and i asked arthur at a certain point how, how, how he thought it came out he's just like it was okay once you cut the heart out of the whole thing i stopped caring <laughs> Yeah. Cut the heart out. It was probably better. Yes, it was. It was. On the other end of the spectrum, I know you, you had a, a working relationship with Norman Mailer, and yeah. you told that the, the story of the opposite of cutting. Yeah, well, Norm was hilarious. I mean, he, he was uh, um, uh, commanded every conversation I ever had with him, you know. Um, uh, Shock. Yeah, he, he would, you'd, you'd call him up, he's like, you gotta talk louder, I got a bad ear. You know, artillery shells from like World War II, oh, it's never been here. Um, so he would uh, choose to to hear and not hear whatever it was that you were saying. And we would talk about, uh, this was for the 50th anniversary issue of Playboy when we opened up the checkbook and we could afford the guy. Um, and even then we were, you know, a little nervous about the the, the price and he had uh, an agent uh, Andrew Wiley who was known as the Jackal you know for a reason uh, and he settled upon a price an exorbitant amount and <coughs> was going to write this story and we fed him the idea and it went back and forth I was just there as a sounding board for this idea that, that he was gestating um, 
And, uh, you know, the stories do. Uh, on a Friday, he calls me up on a Thursday. And a conversation went something like this. You know, I'm not going to have the story by next Friday. <laughs> you know, wait, wait, it's, it's, it's tomorrow. Um, I don't even think I can get it for the Friday after that. But I'm going to try. And uh, also, there's no way I can get this done in 6,000 words. It's going to be more like nine. And I was like, Norman, the deadline's tomorrow. Uh, you yeah. know, what, what are you going to do? He's like, well, I, it's possible I could get it to you in, in 10 days. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, and hung up. And I'm like, oh, I run down to, to uh, uh, Jim Kaminsky, who was running the magazine at the time, down to his office. I'm like, holy shit, Norman just called. He doesn't have it. It's not coming into it. And we were like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We didn't even know, like, uh, you have to commission a piece of artwork, get the headlines. So, you know, we were like, oh, what are we going to Can we do it? Can we find the time? Uh, we were working on that. And so he he found a way. We were like, okay, we'll do it that way. And I, I got by the time I got back to my office, the phone was ringing again. It was Andrew Wiley. He's just like, okay, I've just spoken to Norman, and I'm willing to give you a discount on the, the extra 3,000 words. I'm like, what? We have to pay for right. it? You know? For the 3,000 words you don't want. Exactly. He gave me a 50% break, uh, and, and, and it came in. And then naturally... <coughs> I had to edit the story within 24 hours because that's all that Norman had. <laughs> like, what's going on? You're like two yeah. weeks late with it. It all ended up working really well. That was one thing where um, I really did reach. I mean, Norman's like, uh, Mailer gives you so much that 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 um, it's so rich. Everything is just like, you know, amazing. But I, I restructured it. I moved chunks of it around. Um, because, uh, uh, I was just paying attention to convention where, you know, I think he, he had eight main points that he wanted to make. And, and so I, uh, 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 broke it down that way and, and kept the intro short. Uh, the piece read mostly, it's like three quarters of red as an intro. And then there were some points at the end. I'm like, no, 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 we can rejigger. Um, so we did this massive overhaul, uh, just in terms of rearranging and, and you know, transitions and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Um, and I gave it back to him and he was uh, uh, very pleased with it. And he said, don't tell anybody you did this to me. Wow. <laughs> it's like, thank you. Now, I know that he had been through that before. I, he must have. And I, it was just a, a very nice, right. genial uh, way of, uh, of uh, uh, thanking me or, or, or throwing some praise. Um, and so everything was went really smoothly and went great. And then I went to speak at a uh, Norman Mailer, first Norman Mailer Writers Conference or something like that. They were, um, uh, the people around Mailer were... Uh, he never gets enough respect, and and uh, uh, for one reason or another, probably because his and it, it, his own sense of humor about how he blows opportunities is great. You know, and he's written. This about is his that. people's take or your take? Yeah, no, no, that's his own. But 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 his right. people, they they were so there are people who are really passionate about Mailer, like really passionate. And there's a whole um, you know there's an MLA thing going on. If you're a, a, a professor who wants to teach Mailer. You know, you need other professors to do that. So your status rises along with everybody else. But if Mailer is um, passe, uh, then you're you're just a, somebody in a backwater uh, area of study and you don't get any of this. So they try to gather together to They're collectively get them on the syllabus. Lobbyists. Everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> academic lobbyists yeah. for Mailer. Mailer's uh, uh, um, uh, great 
pal and, and, and executor, Lawrence Schiller, who's an amazing guy in his own right, uh, is also into this because more times mailers on the syllabus, that's more revenue coming in for, for mailer. And he had expenses up the wazoo, six wives, nine children, you know. So this whole thing of like uh, uh, building, you know, getting getting snowball going because there, Joan Didion gets studied. I mean, yeah, but but Mailer's controversial, so you know, it's a lot of hands off thing. Anyway, that's a long way of saying I went there to go get a speech or whatever. And we had uh, there was a party at his house, and uh, at a uh, during cocktail hour, socially uh, um, talking. He talked about the piece, and the piece had come out, and the magazine had come out, and he liked everything. But the subhead, which we had generated in house, had something like a, a, a it was called an immodest proposal. That was his title, um, and then uh, the subhead was something like in a soulful examination of whatever you know, the United States today, something like that. And he took great issue with the word soulful, as as he should. It wasn't my word. I'll just put it, go out there with it. But I had to, um, I certainly couldn't say that, you know, I'm part of the team Playboy. So I don't want to say, you know, that was a stupid word. We kind of like a, did a little too much of that, you know, around that period. Um, but I wasn't going to, you know, you can't do that. So I was trying to defend the use of soulful. And I remember Norman got more and more, not agitated, but, uh, but passionate. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, you got to keep it in your back pocket. You keep a word like that in your back pocket. You never, you never put it out there. It's keep it in back pocket. Let the reader think that. I'm like, and he, everything you're saying is true. You don't label yeah. anything. Don't, don't, you know, yeah. don't, don't tell people how they're going to read it or receive this, yeah. this, this missive. I mean, just let, it'll become obvious. Don't hype it up. Today, these there's days. More, excuse me, there's more and more handholding by, you know, my mother, I remember, got upset when the New Yorker started having sub those little subtitles. Exactly. And she yeah. was like, why do they need to tell me how to read this? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. And those, all the sidebars and things. And, and now we live with uh, these phones that just hype out things like, you'll be shocked and amazed yeah. at this, these seven things about Britney Spears. Like, no, I'm not, yeah. you know. But anyway, that's the way it's done. So there, this was like the tip of the iceberg, and he went through that. And uh, man, I was like under the gun because he had three, three or four people surrounding him now, and everybody's drinking, and they're like, "Yeah, what a shitty word!" They're all piling, dogpiling the rabbit, and I'm just like, "Hey, man, you know, this is what they, you know, this is what fit the thing." But uh, we went, you know, um, and uh, and he saw, like, you know, at a certain point, he was just like, "Ah, oh, this is like," and when everybody else started jumping in. He was like, no, 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 it's okay, man. It's cool. It's cool. We're cool. It's not a problem. Right. I just, I just wanted to, you know. Right. I get, I get wound up sometimes. It's right. all right. It's all right. You saw the bullying happen. Yeah, and I thought that was again. He really, uh, and those are, um, uh, it's a good example of the kind of guy he, he he was. You know, with that, he's very social, very sociable kind of for all the wacky stories and situations he found himself in. Um, really, very, very skillful. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like that that Updike story that 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 I told you, where totally unanticipated the charm, you know, of uh, that 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 Updike had at, yeah. the, at the party, yeah, and 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 at Christie. You can find out more about Christopher Napolitano and his future projects, which he's not quite ready to talk about. By Googling his name, Christopher is spelled like the normal Christopher and Napolitano, N-A-P-O-L-I-T-A-N-O. -O. Coming up in April, we will have part two of my conversation with Chris, 
and the return of the very first person I ever recorded for this show, uh, Annie Duke, who has a new book out, her first non-poker mainstream book called Thinking in Bets. Again, you can find anything about this show and any episodes at 15minutesjamieberger.com. And you can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere podcasts are freely offered. Ed Patnode is the engineer. Christian Kandari wrote the song. This is 15 Minutes. I'm... Jamie Berger.